Jesus. 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read the first verse and then we're going to work our way down through the rest of some verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly beloved son. Elsewhere, Paul will refer to Timothy as his son in the faith. Timothy is not his biological son, his physical son, but he is a spiritual son to the apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 16, you have the story as Paul is traveling in his missionary journeys that he comes to Timothy's hometown. And there he meets Timothy's grandmother and Timothy's mother. His father is not a believer, but Timothy has been taught the scriptures from an, from an early child. And he is, they have made him wise unto salvation, the scripture says. And so as the gospel is preached, Timothy responds. And so Paul says to him, Timothy, I want you to travel with me. And through the rest of the book of Acts, you see where Timotheus is listed along with Barnabas or Silas or Paul's other traveling companions. And over that time, Paul refers to Timothy as his dearly beloved son, his son in the faith. As we think about fathers today, I want us to think about and take that truth just a little bit further this morning because I believe there is a truth that is absolutely true for our earthly fathers. And that is, it is the father's response, a father's responsibility to invest in and help develop the spiritual well-being of their children. It is our responsibility as dads. But beyond that, it goes to moms as well. And it goes beyond parents to what I call surrogate spiritual parents. Those who will step in, whether they are their children or not, they will step in and help carry that load, help fill that role. As we think about that, there's a lot of challenges. There is a desperate need in our world today for Christian adults who will stand in as a surrogate spiritual parent. They will, they will come alongside of parents who are striving and trying to do what is right. They will stand in the gap for parents who have no desire, have no concern about their children's spiritual well-being. That is a, a vision for us as a church that we will help to make sure that with our children's ministry and our student ministry, that it is something more than just glorified babysitting. I'm glad that we can come to church and have a good time. Boy, our preschool Bible camp this week, the kids came and they had a, had a great time. And some of y'all could let your face know that you can have a great time at church. Your mind may know it, but you haven't let your face know it yet this morning. If you believe you can have a good time at church, can I hear a good Amen. Wow, that was good. I'm impressed. Lord, thank you for this wonderful service. We'll just end on that note. But we can come to church and have a good time. But our children and our students, it's more than just coming and having a good time. We want them to come and we want them to learn. That We want them to not just learn information. We want them to learn the scriptures. They're able to make them wise unto salvation. We want them to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We want them to grow in their faith. We want them to learn to serve. We want them to learn to share the gospel so that when they graduate and they move out into adulthood, they are firm in the faith. They are faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And that's what our need is. That's what our vision. That's why when many churches, for various reasons, are stepping back from children's ministry and student ministry, we're moving forward. We are progressing forward in it. We're seeking to do more. Why? Because we firmly believe in investing in the next generation to carry the faith of Jesus Christ. It should be our vision for our homes. 
you have children in your home, grandchildren in your family, you have people around you, you have children and, and students that have been brought into your realm of influence, it should be your burden and your desire to be a part of their spiritual well-being. And it should be our desires as individuals in all that we do. In this text this morning, I want to first just give you a quick definition. What is the meaning of being a spiritual parent? It's a spiritually mature, it's spiritually mature believers purposefully participating in the spiritual discipleship of younger believers. Now, I mean, just pause a minute and say that, you know, we've got to quantify what the different names are for, you know, there's children and students and, and young adults, and we've got all different terms. And, and I remember being in a church one time where they referred to anybody under 30. They kept talking about the children, the children. And I'm looking around, I didn't see a whole, they considered anybody under 30 a child. But when everybody in the church is over 80, that's probably pretty accurate. So we talk about these different... Let me just say that this is a principle that's true for our children. It's true for our students. And it's true for young Christians. The Bible talks about the older Christians teaching the younger Christians. That's not just in age. That is in level of maturity. So the truth that I'm talking about this morning is primarily for those who are our spiritual children, our sons and daughters in the faith. But it certainly applies in many other areas as well. It's spiritually mature believers purposefully participating in the discipling of younger believers. Why is it necessary? Well, it's necessary because it's part of the Great Commission. Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. We can't stop at just preaching the gospel. He says, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. It is our task, whether it is a six-year-old or a 60-year-old that gets saved, it is our desire and our purpose that they not just get saved and go to the baptismal waters, they follow Christ, that we help them to grow into Christ's likeness, that we are there to partner with them. That is certainly true with children and students. We don't want them just to go through and get a lot of knowledge and information. We want them to be wholehearted, passionate followers of Jesus Christ. It's important because many families neglect spiritual instruction. There are some families where, for example, in Timothy's family, where the dad was just not a believer. And there are others where there are believers, but they neglect the spiritual instruction. Some years ago, we don't, this is nothing new. This is something that's been around for some time. Back in the 1700s, a man by the name of, late 1700s, early 1800s, a man by the name of William Wilberforce worked fervently in England for the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. He said, there are two things that God has put before me that are my task, the abolition of slavery and the reformation of morals or manners in our culture. But he said this about Christians who are children who are raised, and listen to me, this is a clear warning for those of us who raise our children in church. He talked about them being raised in a Christian environment. He said there is the danger that they will think, and I'm paraphrasing his words here, but there's a danger that they will think that they can, they can receive their faith, their Christianity, by hereditary exchange, that it's passed on to them. That just because dad is a Christian, just because mom is a Christian, that they themselves will be Christian. And he said, the parents, he said, you don't hear them instructing their children in the faith. They would be embarrassed. He said they would blush to think that their child was deficient in some other area of knowledge or skills. And I think about our day when we're so concerned, as we should be, about the education of our children. There's nothing wrong with education. It is a good, wonderful thing. 
but we're concerned about making sure that our children are getting a good education. And we're concerned about making sure that our kids know how to hit a ball or dribble a ball. And we're concerned about knowing that they have some other skills of music or arts. And we're concerned about those things. We ought to have an even greater concern about their spiritual understanding, about their knowledge of God, that they walk with Christ themselves. And he says they do that. And he says they're surprised when their children grow up. They begin to hear questions about the faith and they have nothing with which to answer it. And they fall into the company of unbelievers. Many families neglect that. And then the families that are doing it, we do this because the families who are doing it need encouragement. It is a challenging task to raise up a child in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord that Paul talks about in Ephesians. Those of you who are trying, some of you single parents or you're a spiritually single parent and you're trying, you're doing everything you can. And you know the burden, you know the challenge. Some of you that are married, you're both trying and you're working and you're trying to raise them and teach them. It is not easy to do. And so because of the challenge of it, we as believers, we as a church, our desire is to come alongside. We need this so that we can encourage and support those that are giving every effort they can for their children to know Christ. That's our task. That's our goal as a church. Our, church, our task in student ministry and children ministry is not to replace the parents. It's to encourage and to come alongside of and help them accomplish what God has given you to do. But sometimes those parents are not there as it was in the life of Timothy. And there has to be someone who will step up and help fill that role. The main reason that we have to do this is because our children and our students are at risk. Someone has said that the faith is only one generation away from extinction. At any time, the faith is only one generation away from extinction. Why is that? Because God doesn't have grandchildren. Have you heard that phrase before? What does that mean? God doesn't have grandchildren. That means that your children and my children are not God's children because they're our children. They're not saved because we're saved. They're not Christians because we're Christians. They have to be born into the family of God just like you and I are born into the family of God. And because of that, within one generation, the faith can be gone. Why? Because the next generation has to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It is not enough, students, for you to just come and be here in the service. It's not enough for you to just know how to say the right things. It's not enough for you to know how to share your faith with somebody else. It is a matter of having a personal walk with God. And I am thankful for those that we've seen who have come up through our, our children's ministry and our student ministry, and they've graduated, and you know, we know, you can tell, that they walk with God, they are serving God, they are living for God, they are doing everything they can to be a dedicated follower of Christ. And that is our passion, that is our desire, is for them to be genuine in their faith. Who has the responsibility for this? Well, it begins with those of us who are biological, physical parents of children, but it's the, it's the responsibility. Any spiritually mature believer has the responsibility to involve themselves in it. And let me say, it doesn't have to necessarily be an adult. I love that we have so many of our students who are engaged when we have mom diggity, and those students lead in worship. Do you know what they're doing? They're having a part in investing in those children that are younger than them. And they go out and CEF goes out and it's teenagers sharing the gospel with children. So you don't have to be an adult 
to engage in this work. It is anyone who has grown in their faith enough to turn around and help someone else. Oh, well, that's the job of the pastors. No, it is the pastor's job to challenge you and equip you to do this. Ephesians chapter 4 says that it is the pastors and the teachers and the leaders in the church so that they may equip the body for doing the work of the body. It's our responsibility. What are some models of this? Well, let me give you two models of different ways that this takes place in, in, the, old, in the Scriptures. One is in the Old Testament, Naomi and Ruth, where you have almost an adoption, spiritual adoption that takes place. Naomi is not the prime example of a person that we would think of to be a spiritual mother, a mother in Israel. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, Pastor said spiritually mature, I don't feel very spiritually mature, so I'm probably not the best person to do this. Go read about Naomi. Naomi and her husband Elimelech make a really big mistake, and they doubt God, and they go and they live in Moab. And their two sons uh, marry into the Moabitess nation. They marry two Moabitess girls. And Elimelech dies, and then the two sons die. And Naomi gets ready to go back. And she doesn't say, hey, girls, come back with me. I'll teach you about God. She says, stay here and worship your false gods. <laughs> stay here in Moab. And Ruth almost has to twist her arm. Some of you may find yourself having your arm twisted into being a spiritual parent for somebody. You may go into it kicking and screaming, but don't underestimate what God can do through you. And they go back, and you remember what Naomi said? She said, uh, my nickname, I got a new nickname down in Moab, just call me Old Bitter. Let me tell you, I've met some people who could carry the nickname of Bitter. But she said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, call me bitter because God has dealt bitterly with me. Not exactly the kind of person, but she becomes a mother to Ruth. And she pours her life into Ruth's life. And God uses her to bring Ruth into the nation of Israel and into the faith of Jehovah and into the bloodline of the Messiah. Another example, of course, is Paul and Timothy, where you have one who assists. It's not an adoption, it's assistance. Timothy has a mother and a grandmother who are faithful women. He says in this text, he says, I believe, he says, remember the faith that was in them. Later in this book, he's going to say, you know, you've known the scripture since you were a child. Who was it that taught the scriptures to Timothy? It was his mother and his grandmother. And Paul was coming alongside them to assist. God may use you in either one of those ways. That's the model of it. But here's what I want you to see this morning in this text. I want you to see the ministry of spiritual parenting. How can we do this? I believe that every believer can have a part in this. So here's what I want you to do as you hear these things. I want you to think and pray about the people in God, has, God has brought into your life. It may be the children in your family. It may be your grandchildren. It may be your nieces or nephews. It might be a friend's children. It might be it's any young believer around you that God has brought into your world that you can pour into. Notice some things about this. Where does it begin? What do our spiritual children need? First of all, they need love. This needs to be done out of a heart of love and a spirit of love, not out of... I want them to think well of me. Not out of, I want to, I'm concerned what people will think about them. Notice what he says about Timothy in verse 2. I'm writing to Timothy, my dearly beloved son. Timothy was not just a traveling companion to Paul. Timothy was not just someone that he looked at and he's like, okay, I've, I've met him and I want him to come with me. He was not just a, an assistant in ministry. He was a dearly beloved son. 
Paul loved him like a father loves a son. And he says, I, I do this. You are dearly beloved. Our children, our students, they need to know through us the love of God. I'm going to say, I, I don't mean this to be ugly, but I've been around some adult Christians that did not express to students and children that God, was, God loved them or that they loved them. I've been around some old, crabby Christians that I'm, I want to say, I'm not quite sure how to say it and say it nice, so I'm not going to say it. Y'all know what I'm thinking. Amen. And they don't show, we need to express that God, they need to experience and see and hear through us that God loves them. But notice also, not only love, his example, they need an example. The the first part of verse 3, I thank God. Now this is a bold statement from Paul. Whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience. Paul says, look, you have seen in me, you have seen an example. Does this mean we have to be perfect to be this, play this role? Absolutely not. None of us are going to be perfect. But let us not fall into the trap of presenting holiness and righteousness as if it's an impossibility, as if we are not able to do this. God would never have called us to holiness, to living righteously. He would never have saved us for that. He would never have told us to teach them to observe all things that I have commanded if through the work of the Holy Spirit it were not possible. And so he's called us to this. He sets an example. Down in verse 5, he says, You saw it also. It dwelt in your grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice. We will never be able to help someone grow past where we have grown ourselves. I cannot teach what I don't know. I can't lead where I won't go, and I can't disciple when I won't grow. What did he say in Deuteronomy chapter 6? These words which I have commanded thee this day. He said, you'll teach them diligently unto your children. But what does he say before he says, you'll teach them to your children? He says, these words which I have commanded thee this day shall be in thine heart. It starts with us. It starts with us showing our children how to study the Bible, what it looks like. Some of my earliest memories are waking up in the morning and looking in and seeing my dad sitting with his Bible in his lap, in his hands, studying. Now, very often he had half half pieces of paper where he would write his notes. He's the only one that can read them. He writes like a doctor sending a prescription to a pharmacist. You can't read a word of what he says. Don't have a clue of what he says, but he knows and the Holy Spirit knows. He doesn't speak in tongues, but I believe he writes in tongues from time to time. But I remember seeing him, and so he not only taught me to study the Bible and to read the Bible, he modeled it for me. We need to model for our our children and our students, we need to model for them what it looks like to worship God. I still remember seeing, sometimes as a child, I thought people did the craziest things in church, and I'm an adult now, and I still think people do some of the craziest things in church. But I look back, and I remember the heart of worship that I saw in adults, And sometimes they raised their hand, and sometimes they said amen, and sometimes they sat there and just wept and cried. Sometimes they were moved. Sometimes they went to the altar. Sometimes they knelt where they were. But I watched, and I saw their modeling. I saw their example. They need to see that in us. They need to see not just our actions, but they need to see the genuineness of our faith. They need to see beyond the fact that we... They need to not see hypocrisy in our hearts. They need to see that we are following God with a pure, clear conscience. They need our prayers. Look at the end of verse 3. Paul says, Timothy, without ceasing, I have remembrance of thee 
in my prayers night and day. Have you ever been awakened in the middle of the night and when you wake up, the first thing that comes to your mind is someone that you're burdened about, maybe one of your children, maybe a family member, maybe a grandchild, and you're burdened about their spiritual condition, you're worried about whether they're saved or not, you're worried about where they are spiritually in their relationship with God, and you spend the night watching, praying for God to work in their hearts. Paul says, Timothy, I pray for you continually. When we can do nothing else, we can pray for our spiritual children. We can pray for God to work in their hearts. Paul and Timothy are separated by a great distance, but the Holy Spirit is in both places, and the God who answers prayer is in all places at all times. And so Paul says, I'm praying for you. They need our time. Paul says in verse 4, greatly desiring to see thee. Paul says, Timothy, I I can't wait. It's been a while since we've been together. I'm looking forward to being with you. There's something about being together, both in planned and unplanned time, but pouring into our children, pouring into our students, having that time together with them. I think about the people in addition to my mom and dad. I had a lot of time growing up with my mom and dad, but there are other adult believers who spoke and poured and modeled into my life what it looked like to have a heart for God and to have that time together with them. He says, Timothy, I can't wait to be with you. They need to have under, we need to have understanding. Look in verse 4. He says, I greatly desire to see you because I'm mindful of your tears. Paul knew that Timothy was facing challenges. Timothy's a young pastor at the church at Ephesus. He's followed some significant leadership. He's followed perhaps, well, certainly Paul and Apollos, and he's followed John the Apostle. John may have even been at that time in his congregation. And Timothy is facing challenges, and he knows that there's burdens. And Paul says, I'm aware of what's going on in your life. Those children and students and young adults and young Christians that we're pouring into, they need to know that we understand what they're going through. And sometimes that's a challenge because though we may remember going through difficulties and challenges in our life, there is a different set. The temptations are the same. The challenges are the same, but the the form of those challenges is not always the same. And so we need to have understanding that what they're facing may be somewhat different than what we faced when we were young. There are certain things that our students and children are going through and temptations and questions and things they're challenged with that you and I never even imagined or thought about. So we need to have understanding and compassion. He says, I'm aware of your tears. There needs to be cooperation. Verse 5, he talks about his mother and his grandmother. It's never our task to undermine parents. Our job is to come alongside those who are seeking to raise their children for God and help them. Here's something important. Look in verse 5. There needs to be confidence in them. He says, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, Timothy, your faith is real. It's genuine. He says, It was in your grandmother and it was in your mother. Look at the end of the verse. I am persuaded that it's in thee also. My generation or around my generation and older, let's be very careful in generalizing and speaking about the younger generation. I hear frequently people say, well, this younger generation, they don't do this, they don't want to do this, and they don't do this. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? Your parents and grandparents said the same thing about you. Every generation thinks the generation after them is going to be the end of the world. 
they're just they're destroying the country. And we've got all kinds of names for it. We call them millennials. Let me just tell you that millennials, are some of them are 40 years old now. We've got to get with the times, folks. It's, there's different names. There's, you know, the boomers. I know there's, I can see some boomers here this morning. Some of y'all have been booming since you got in here, and I'm not even sure what that means. And then there's my generation, the Gen Z crowd, Gen, Gen X crowd. See, we don't even know what crowd we are. We just sort of get overlooked. We've been overlooked our whole life, haven't we, Gen X? We just, we just, we're, we're fine with that. And you got Gen Z, and you've got all the different categories. And every category likes to speak evil of the other. Well, all these old boomers, they just need to do it. And, and we're talking, let me just say, just, this is just for us that are older. Let's stop generalizing. Let's show some confidence in the faith of the next generation. Let's show some confidence that they are genuine in their faith, that they are real, that they are going to do great things for God. I watch this generation, and I believe with all of my heart that this may be the generation of revival. This may be the generation that God uses to do a dramatic work, not just in our nation, but around the world. They have a heart to serve. They have a heart to give of themselves. And I believe with all of my heart, they need some adult believers who will come along behind them and say, I believe that your faith is unfeigned. I believe you're real. I believe your faith is genuine. And I believe that God is going to use you to do great and mighty things. Their confidence, and they along with that, the encouragement. In verse 6, he says, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that you stir up the gift of God which is in thee. God has not given us, verse 7, the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. He knew the challenges that Timothy faced. Timothy may have been a little bit timid. And Paul says, you've not been given a spirit of fear. They need our encouragement. When you see a young person, when you see a child who is doing what they can to follow Christ, encourage that. When you see them, when you see our children quoting verses of Scripture on Wednesday night, give them affirmation, give them encouragement. When you see a family that's a parent that's bringing their children to church, maybe it's a mom bringing their children, her children by, their, by herself. Maybe it's a mom and a dad. Encourage them, affirm them, encourage them in what they are doing that is right. They need that encouragement. There's room for instruction and correction. Verse 8 through verse 18 is instruction. But sometimes we spend so much time correcting and saying what's all wrong. Let's, let's speak about what is good. And then there needs to be a challenge. We need to challenge our students and our children. Look, live for God. Don't wait. Paul will say to Timothy elsewhere, let no man despise your youth, but be an example of the believers. And I say to our students and I say to our children that are scattered across our congregation this morning, be an example, be a model, be what the rest of us ought to aspire to be. God, give us the fervency of our children and our students. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, Thou therefore, and he says it again, My son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's the challenge. He'll say in verse 13 to Timothy, Hold fast. So I say to our children, our students, I say to young Christians, Be strong in the Lord. Hold fast. The rest of us are here with you. We are on the same team. Let's stop this business of trying to nitpick and criticize and say, well, they're not doing enough of this and they don't care about this. What happens when you say that? Yes, there are some in the younger generation that lack some of the character that some generations have had. 
And there are some that lack certain skills and certain, certain desires and all those kinds of things. But look, when you criticize that, you're speaking evil of the ones who are doing well. You're speaking evil of the ones who are following after Christ. Let's see that and let's affirm that we are together in this. We are a part of the family of God. And there needs to be some spiritual parents, both physical and surrogate, who will stand in and say, I will be a spiritual parent for this generation. Why is that necessary? Because someone will teach our children. Someone will disciple our students. The question is, who will it be? Will we do it or will we let the world do it? In the 1400s, as the Eastern Empire, the Eastern part of the Christian world began to crumble, the Ottoman Turk Empire began to expand and increase in strength. And as the empire would expand, they would take some of the Christian nations. Not necessarily, everybody there was not a Christian, but it was a, it was a part of the Christian world. And the emperor said, hey, one-fifth of everything we take is mine, so I want one-fifth of the, of the people that we take. I want one-fifth of the slaves that we take. And he told his men, he said, I want you to pick the smartest and the best. He did really what Nebuchadnezzar did with, with Judah. He says, I want you to pick the smartest and the best and the strongest young men. And that's my one-fifth. And he brought them back and he says, now I want you to train them. I want you to indoctrinate them in our way of thinking. I want you to prepare them for war. I want you to prepare them for business and for government. I want you to educate them. And as he would do this, there were actually, some resisted, but some Christian families saw this as a benefit. And they said, hey, they would even offer their sons. Here, take our sons. They saw it as a way, well, they won't have to live in poverty. They won't have to work hard their whole life. We'll give them to you to train and to teach, and so we'll pass them to you. And so they took them, and they called this group of soldiers. It became one of the most highly trained group of soldiers in the Ottoman Empire. They called them Janissaries, and they were skilled. They were completely and ultimately devoted to the empire and to the emperor of the Ottoman Turks. And as they trained them, they would send them, they became some of the, most, some of the fiercest fighters as the as the Eastern Empire began to fall, the last city to stand was Constantinople, the Christian capital. And it was surrounded. The, the emperor of the Ottomans came and he surrounded with 100,000 soldiers. Among those 100,000 was 10,000 Janissaries. Inside that city, there was only 7,000 soldiers holding them off. And attack after attack came. And the city held, and the city held, but they knew they could only withstand. If he came and attacked again, that the city would fall. And so the emperor, he said, send the Janissaries in. And those 10,000 soldiers breached the wall, and they stormed the city, and they began to kill everyone in sight. And what many of them were not aware of or did not care was that their, very, their swords were, were soaked with the blood of their own families. You see, someone is going to teach and someone is going to disciple our children. Someone is going to teach and disciple our students. The question is not, will they be taught? Will they be discipled? The question is, who will do it and who will we do it for? Paul says, Timothy, your father doesn't care about your spiritual situation, your condition. But I do. And I don't have any sons of my own. I'm just a single guy but I'm going to step up and I'm going to be a spiritual parent. My question for you this morning is who will be? Who will step in the gap? Who will 
be a spiritual parent. You say, well, pastor, I don't know who I can help. Let me tell you, there's plenty that you can help. And if you don't know, God will bring someone into your life. Will you stand up? Will you step forward? We say, by God's grace, I will be a spiritual parent. It might be teaching a Sunday school class. It might be serving with the students in a small group. It might be just simply pouring into someone in your family. But by God's grace, will we be a spiritual parent? Maybe this morning, maybe your parents are your spiritual parents, and you need to just express gratitude for that. You may need to get in this altar and say, God, I want to thank you that you gave me parents that care about my spiritual well-being. They may be in this congregation, and you may need to go to them. Maybe you need to call them when you get home. Maybe, maybe they're already in heaven. And maybe when you were young, you never thanked them. You were tired of their rules, and you didn't like what they did. Maybe you just need to come and say, God, I just want to thank you for the, what my parents put into me. Or maybe it's a spiritual parent. Maybe it's a mentor. Maybe it's a, a Titus II person in your life. Whatever God may speak to your heart about this morning. Let me tell you, church, this needs to be the passion. This needs to be the vision of our church that the faith will be passed to the next generation. Will you bow with me for prayer this morning? Father, speak to our hearts. May this text, this passage, this truth help us, Lord. Help us. We live in a day when our students are attacked by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, the, the pleasures of this world, the treasures of materialism, the pressure of society and their friends and their peers, all pushing them toward things that are away from you. Lord, help us to be a part of those who will stand between them and destruction, and we will make a wall and we will say, we will not let this pass. Father, speak.